Hello and welcome to your Active's Yellow Room. I am Evikiori and this is the last episode of the season. The Yellow Room is going on a summer break, but before that we are talking about Europe's Fit for 55 climate package that was unveiled this Wednesday, the reactions and the upcoming implementation. We are also talking about Belarus being accused for human trafficking by Lithuania, leading to a new standoff between the EU and Belarus. Is MNISC really using migrants as a pressure tool? And how is the EU reacting to the situation? And finally, we are focusing on WhatsApp, the messaging application and the consumer complaints over its new privacy policy. Now, the European Commission unveiled Europe's Fit for 55 climate package on Wednesday, just yesterday. So, to break down the components of this story, I spoke with Kira Taylor, Euractiv's energy and environment reporter. Kira, happy to have you here to explain the important bits of the climate package. And let's just start from the basics. What is the Fit for 55 and what was decided? So the Fit for 55 package is a collection of over a dozen proposals on climate legislation that the European Commission put forward yesterday in order to reach its its climate goals. It gets its name from the 55% greenhouse gas reduction target by 2030 laid out in the climate law, which has given it some lovely alliteration with all of the Fs, but has made it almost impossible to say, particularly after the busy day we had yesterday. So some of the package is made up of old pieces of legislation being revised and others are these shiny new proposals that we're really yet to get our teeth into. We'd already seen a lot of leaks that gave us an idea of the direction of the package. For instance, we were 99% sure that there would be a new emissions trading scheme for the fuel for buildings and road transport. We also knew that there would be some sort of funds to help vulnerable households and businesses cope with that cost. Uh, We saw both of those yesterday. And alongside that, we saw the numbers to support that scheme. So 25% of the revenues from this new ETS will go towards helping out vulnerable households who may be adversely affected by it. So often in leaks, you see XX in brackets, and it's all very mysterious, but you don't actually know the numbers you're dealing with until the day. In numbers wise, I think the most surprising was the 40% target for renewable sources in Europe's energy mix by 2030. That's at the higher end of what we were expecting. Uh, At the moment, around 20% of Europe's energy is from renewable sources. So it's pretty much a doubling of what we have at the moment. Mm-hmm. And what were the reactions on the decision? Because, you know, I was scrolling a little bit uh, this morning on Euractive.com and I read that there is some criticism already. Yeah, everyone has something to say on this. Um, the Brussels Twitter sphere yesterday was just packed full of opinions. And to be honest, I still have a lot of emails to get through. I think I must have had like 20 or 30 people reacting to it. Um, my colleague wrote a great piece on the Commission's Green Deal lead, uh, Franz Timmermans, meeting with the Environment Committee of the European Parliament. There we saw a Green MEP, Baz Leikhout, saying there's a lot of resistance all over the place. And the chair of the committee saying that they are yet to be convinced on certain factors. I think we can probably assume those certain factors are this new ETS uh, because of its near direct impact on citizens. Franz Timmermans was urging people to actually take the time and read the proposal before they criticise it. But you're already seeing strong opposition to it and from EU countries as well. We knew that many countries, including Poland, weren't convinced. And yesterday, the Energy uh, Minister of Luxembourg said, on again on Twitter, everything exists on Twitter, uh, that the extension is counterproductive and will create unnecessary social hardship. 
So there's still a lot to be worked out. And to be honest, there's still a lot of opinions yet to come. All of this, barring a few pieces of the text, is now going to be subject to Europe's lawmaking process. So we're going to see it go through the European Parliament and be debated on by European countries. This is only really the beginning and these texts are not going to come through unscathed. Well, I guess this process will take a couple of years until we actually see the climate package being implemented. Certainly, yeah. I, w- I think we're uh, an optimistic estimate is about a year and a half. And since we are talking about the implementation of this package, how uh, is this new legislation affecting EU's uh, population in practice? I think the good news here is that there is undeniably more ambition. So if you take what the European Commission is planning to do on carbon sinks, these natural habitats like forests or or peatlands that capture CO2 from the atmosphere, building those up, which they're planning to do, is going to help uh, tackle climate change. But there are concerns. Um, If you just take this extension of the emissions trading scheme, people will probably see some sort of price hike on costs, and it may take a while for that to kind of balance out. And it's just going to be solved by this new tool from Brussels, which you always get into kind of the bureaucracy and whether it will work at first, so that there are concerns about that. And alongside that, people will over time see changes to their lives, Um, even if it's just waving goodbye to your combustion engine car sometime before 2035. So there will be changes. Um, I think it's inevitable when tackling climate change that the world has to change a bit as well. Mm -hmm. And what can we expect? What can happen next? Yeah, the key word here is unfortunately patience. I say unfortunately because I'm really not very good at that. Um, A lot of this legislation, like I said, won't even come into effect until the mid-2020s. And it's going to be debated on and tweaked and changed before it ever sees implementation. Um, So aside from expecting a lengthy legislation process, you can expect to see some pushback from the industry over certain points and then from NGOs who may say there isn't enough ambition. They're already saying that um, at the moment. In a way, that's exactly what is needed for a package like this. It needs to be ambitious enough to drive the way forward and incentivize investment in new technology, but not so ambitious that it leaves people behind. So really, criticism from all sides is possibly a good thing. And you're also going to see reactions from other countries. Europe is aiming to be the first climate neutral continent, but it is still in competition with the US and China over things like green technology. Also, we're waiting to see countries' reactions to this carbon border adjustment mechanism, basically a tariff for carbon intensive goods. Um, So far, there really hasn't been that much positivity from Uh, most of the world on this. Um, The European Commission now has its work cut out to actually sell this concept to them and make it a reality. You're listening to Euractiv's Yellow Room. And if you want to expand your knowledge on other EU policy fields, you can listen to our Digital Brief podcast and AgriFood Brief podcast. You can find them on your favorite podcasting app. And on another topic, there is a new standoff between the EU and Belarus that is heating up this week. And to shed some light on the details of this new standoff, I am joined today by Euractiv's reporter, Alexandra Pshosovsky. So what's the story here, Alex? So there are multiple things um, going on here. On the one side, um, the recent EU sanctions on Belarus that have been imposed after the Ryanair flight hijacking in May um, have angered Lukashenko to the extent that he has been 
threatening to block EU exports traveling through his country to Russia and China last week. On the other hand, um, he's irked by Lithuania, who has been very vocal in its support for the Belarus opposition and has also declared a state of emergency um, recently over the number of migrants streaming across its border from Belarus. And Minsk has been accused for sending migrants as pressure tool to Lithuania, right? Yes. So according to Lithuania's border guard service, nearly 1,700 migrants approximately um, have entered Lithuania illegally from Belarus this year. So that's 21 times more illegal migrants in six months than the whole last year. So it's a significant number for the small country. Um, half of them have been identified um, as Iraqi citizens. Um, others came from Congo, Cameroon, Afghanistan. Um, the latter is particularly interesting as there have been reports that the Western troops withdrawal from the country and a resurgence in Taliban influence um, could cause Afghans to flee uh, in fear of a worsening security situation. So, so that's um, another background on, on this side. Um, but Lithuanian officials have told us that um, there have been indications that the route has been facilitated not only by Belarus, but possibly also by Russia and Turkey. It's difficult to confirm that for now. Minsk so far has denied such operations, but many observers and many experts we've been talking to said that it is unlikely, especially judging from comments made by Belarusian officials in relation to this. So Lukashenko said last week, for example, that his government would not close its borders with its neighbors um, and become a holding site for those migrants from the Middle East, from Africa, and that um, it wouldn't stop them if they wanted to go, quote, to the enlightened, enlightened and cozy Europe, which basically can be rated as a confirmation that this is something that is happening with the knowledge or facilitation of, of the regime. How is Vilnius responding to Minsk's pressure then? Uh, I mean, you spoke to Lithuania's uh, foreign minister this week. So. so Lithuania has done a couple of things. They have built new camps to accommodate the asylum seekers and declared a state of emergency. Um, at the same time, the government announced it would build an additional physical barrier that separates uh, Lithuania and Belarus, which basically means a border fence, um, and also uh, said they will deploy additional forces to the border. At the same time, additionally to that, um, this week, two parliamentary committees in Lithuania have suggested pushing for tighter EU immigration policies. Um, they called on the Lithuanian foreign ministry that to draft proposals and discuss them here in Brussels. And as I mentioned before, there's also the worries that third parties, Russia and Turkey, might facilitate this migration flow. So interestingly, um, Lithuania's foreign minister told me this week that um, there are indications that official airlines might be involved in transferring people from Baghdad to Istanbul, from Istanbul to Minsk, um, so travel agencies that are registered in several countries. And this could raise the possibility that um, official bodies would be participating in human trafficking or smuggling. So obviously that's something that needs to be verified closer, but um, the accusation is, is there. And how has the EU been reacting to the situation? Council President Charles Michel went to Lithuania already last week, and um, obviously the EU has condemned Belarus to allowing illegal migrants to cross into the EU. So um, Michel has promised to, to also liaise with the Iraqi prime minister, for example, to discuss repatriation um, issues. 
But the more significant uh, thing I think is that the US border protection agency Frontex has said it will uh, mobilize a rapid intervention force uh, and send it to Lithuania to patrol the border um, next to Lithuanian border guards. Um, however, and this is something that um, some observers have pointed out, and ironically, the EU last year bought um, surveillance drones for Belarusian um, authorities, which were to be used for border protection purposes well, and also for help in disasters and accidents. But, well, some watchdogs have pointed out that, you know, they have rather been used for cracking down on protesters than to actually patrol the border, which, you know, in this situation is an interesting fact to, to, to remember. So what does the current situation mean about how the EU is going to approach any diplomatic relations with Belarus from now on? Can we expect more sanctions? So there have been obviously calls for more sanctions. I mean, it's it's likely that foreign ministers might soon consider some kind of fifth pack sanction package or maybe broader sectoral sanctions. But I mean, that would be discussed in the next EU Foreign Affairs Council, which is after the summer break. It's not soon. So I do think, though, that the migration issue adds on top of the baggage that is already there in the strain relations. There has been an interesting idea floated by uh, Lithuania's foreign minister who told me this week that um, uh, there is currently a discussion between ministers to sanction maybe official entities like those travel agencies or or airlines that take part in such a migration flow facilitation. Um, of course, um, I mean, the, the devil is in the detail in this case. Um, the question on how this could play out and if at all um, is crucial, but I think for now this this is a bit far off. And moving on other news, let's talk about the application that the majority of us use on daily basis, WhatsApp, and why several consumer groups have launched complaints against it. To hear more on this story, I am joined by Euractiv's digital and media editor, Luca Bertuzzi. So, Luca, what are the consumers complaining about? Uh, well, there are two main aspects uh, in these complaints. Uh, the first aspect is that uh, WhatsApp has not been clear about uh, the changes in its privacy policy and the implications for personal data, uh, notably the data protection authorities uh, in Europe have been concerned that this personal data might be shared with Facebook, although WhatsApp denied that in several instances. The other complaint uh, concerns the fact that WhatsApp has been very pushy uh, in requesting uh, users to accept its privacy policy at times suggesting that the, the app would no longer work or would have limited functionalities uh, if the user did not accept uh, the new privacy policy. Uh, and so the consumer organizations are saying that the uh, approach uh, WhatsApp has used in sending push notifications uh, repeatedly uh, and and in not providing enough uh, detail about the new privacy policy is breaching uh, GDPR, the EU privacy framework. And today, Thursday, we have some new developments on this story. So what's happening on that front? 
So basically what happened in Europe, because this, um, this privacy policy has prompted backlash uh, around the world, notably in Turkey and India. In Europe, what has happened is that the Hamburg Data Protection Commissioner, so in Germany there is a federal structure for uh, data protection authorities, the Hamburg one has been a very active uh, in enforcing GDPR and they have started two months ago a urgency procedure uh, against WhatsApp uh, that was basically preventing WhatsApp to uh, process user data according to its new privacy policy, at least in Germany. Since this is an urgency procedure, normally the um, Hamburg commissioner wouldn't have the authority to rule over WhatsApp because WhatsApp as parent company is Facebook and is legally established in Ireland. Uh, under this urgency procedure, uh, the Hamburg commissioner sent the um, probation to the European Data Protection Board which is basically the network of data protection authorities um, of all uh, the EU. The EDPB has today published its binding opinion in relation to this case. The opinion basically said that they reject uh, the ban proposed by the Hamburg uh, commissioner, but they also urge the Irish uh, data protection authority uh, to uh, launch an investigation on how WhatsApp will process the user data following the new privacy policy, in particular, if they will start sharing this data on, with, with its parent company, Facebook. Uh, and it, it, it's curious how little we know about this at the moment. And as a consumer, I'm wondering what is changing with WhatsApp's uh, new privacy policy? Well, as a consumer, you, you will uh, continue to use the, the app as usual. The thing with data is what happens when you give it to these companies, you know, and that is the point that is not clear. Uh, I mean, Facebook uh, has come to the spotlight because uh, it, it suffered a data breach of over uh, 500 30 million users. So the, the concerns with privacy are, are grounded, but it's really difficult to understand uh, what, what is going to happen to your data. And this shouldn't be the case because the principle of GDPR is that you have control over your data. And, uh, and this is clearly not the case here. And do you think WhatsApp's uh, strategy will be adopted by similar apps? No, I don't think so. I think that um, Facebook has a stake here because it's one of the main advertisers in the world. With Facebook, they count, I think, uh, between 70 and 80% of advertising revenues all over the world. Uh, and, and it's a massive industry, as you can imagine. Uh, so there is a reason why Facebook wants more user data. Uh, on the other end, what we have seen is that uh, other messaging apps have uh, been increasingly used following the backlash uh, on, on WhatsApp's new, new privacy policy. Uh, so Signal, for example, uh, uh, saw a spike on, on users. And uh, yeah, so this might actually be beneficial for uh, WhatsApp's competitors. Well, thank you, Luca. And our time is up for this week. I am Evi Chiori and this was your Active's Yellow Room. 
We will be back on your feed after the summer break. Until then, visit youractive.com for the latest news and don't forget to listen to this podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Have a pleasant summer break and thank you for listening. Thank you.